Well, good evening, everyone. Thanks for being here as we kick off a brand new sermon series. Uh, If you grew up in church, you might know we have begun the season of Lent, which for over 1,500 years in the Christian church has been a time to reflect about ourselves, but especially to think deeply about Jesus. So if there's one prayer that I could pray and God guaranteed me that he would immediately say yes, I think my prayer would be, Father, bless me with less me. In fact, if there's a prayer, I would pray for all the couples here today, uh, for all the families here today, for all of you here today, and for our church as a community of faith. If there's one thing that God would just flip the switch and instantly answer, that would be my prayer. Father, bless us with less us. And the reason that would be my prayer is our first fill in the blank for today. Uh, Grab your pen real quick. Because in my life, as I approach middle age, here's what I've learned time and time and time and time and time again, that more me makes a mess, but less me makes us blessed. I've learned that whenever there's more me in the room, I'm thinking about what I want, what I need, how I feel, what I prefer, how I want to control a situation, what I want, when I want, how often I want, it it rarely turns out as a blessing. But whenever God, in those rare instances, gives me massive amounts of humility, when it's not about me, but it's about someone else, life turns out to be really good. I've learned that in marriage. When I'm focused on Kim, Honey, how can I help? When I'm doing what I know she wants without having to be asked, when I'm, I'm studying her as a husband and investing in her as a husband, it, it's not just her that's happier at the end of the day. It's, it's us. I end up being happy. Our home ends up being happy. Same thing as a dad. Whenever I play the, the card with my kids, you know, this is daddy's only day off of work. I'm looking at something on my phone. It never turns out great in the end, but when I put the device down and I give my girls my full attention, when I show them compassion, when I'm a yes dad, unless it's detrimental to their lives, they're super happy and I I feel so much better as a father. Uh, Even actually when I'm doing this, you might not know this, but it's really easy as a pastor to get into your own head. And so when I'm talking for 30 or 40 minutes and you look super bored and I think, oh no, what do do they think about me? Should I just stop? I'm terrible at this. Oh my goodness, I should quit. You know, there's pressure and it's not too much fun to be here. But when there's less me and I'm thinking about you and God and that I get to teach this book and kind of connect what God thinks to where you're living, that is thrilling and beautiful, and the, the pressure's off, and I just get to give without needing anything in return. Like, it doesn't matter where I go, school, sports, home, work, whenever there's less me, there is so much blessing. Have you experienced the same thing? I know a bunch of you have, because that's what you told me. Recently, I sent out an email to our sermon research team about 10 people that I bounce questions off of. 
And I asked them, tell me about the most humble person you've known in your life. And when the answers came back, what filled those long emails were stories of happiness. One mom told me about her teenage son who breaks the mold of teenage sons. Humble, he'd take responsibility for his mistakes. And you could tell his mom felt so blessed how, how much joy this kid brought into their home. Another woman told me about her husband. Just instinctively tries to serve people. He, he never asks for anything in return. He doesn't expect a, a pampered life. He's just there to be like Jesus. And you could tell this woman felt so, so pampered, so blessed because of it. She actually told me she doesn't like talking about her husband around other wives because it gets kind of awkward. <laughs> I heard one person, they told me about their mom uh, who wasn't famous, didn't do anything big in the eyes of the world, but brought so much blessing to her because of her humble heart. I had another woman from our church who told me about my mom. <laughs> and I said what a joy it was as a new Christian to soak in my mom's humble attitude of service, getting to know her and befriend her. And so I think it's, it's safe to say that. When there's less us in the room, we end up with more blessing. Those who humble themselves are exalted because God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. But you know what else I've learned? The other part of that statement is true. That more me makes a huge mess. Like whenever I try to get my way, whenever I try to control a situation, whenever I'm kind of saying to God, my will be done, when I want, how I want it done, life doesn't go so well. It's probably one of the most challenging things we face as humans. We instinctively think of ourselves. The old theologians said that sin was being curved back into your own heart. And whenever we give in to that, it's a mess. Now, the bad news I have to share with you tonight is that when we say me first, it makes a huge mess. And the worst news I have to share with you tonight is that that is a battle you will have to fight every second of every day. I don't care if you're a religious person or not a very religious person, if you're old, young, male, female, I don't care what you do, your relationship dynamic, this is the thing we always have to face. There's no room that we walk into where pride didn't get there first. There's no lock that you can buy from Menards to keep me first out of the situation. It will always be there, always tempting, prodding, whispering in our own hearts. In fact, to prove it to you, let me share a rather depressing list I made this past week of all the ways that me first tries to mess with our lives. All the different masks and forms that pride takes as it tries to sabotage the blessings that God gives. There's arrogance, that arrogant pride, like the talented wide receiver that wants the ball, flaunts, talks trash. And then there's the insecure pride that throws a pity party and doesn't think that God's done anything good. But both kinds of people suck the joy and happiness out of the rooms they walk into. There's loud pride, people who dominate conversations, tell too many stories, 
cut people off, talk about themselves, and the only time they stop is to say, enough about me, what do you think about me? (laughs) And then there's the quiet pride, the people who don't contribute anything, who drive leaders crazy because they can't get a discussion started, and as they quietly sit there, they judge all the other people in the room. There's the pride of youth. I know, Dad, I'm, I'm 14. Uh, There's the pride of experience. What do you know about this place? You've only been working here a year. There's toddler pride that won't accept help to tie its shoes. And there's elderly pride where people who aren't safe on the road insist on driving. There's male pride. Women. Am I right, guys? And there's female pride. Boys are the worst. Am I right, ladies? There's religious pride. The the real problem are those heathens out there. And there's irreligious pride. No, the real problem are those hypocrites there in the church. There's physical pride. I don't need to sleep eight hours or watch what I eat. I'm going to be okay. Emotional pride. That what I feel must be true because, well, I feel it. There's spiritual pride. I can handle this. I can parent. I can talk. I can preach without praying. I'm, I'm pretty good. There's to-do list pride, where I can't serve you because I'm already busy with the stuff that I've planned. There's eternal pride, where of of course I deserve a spot in heaven. I'm a pretty good person. There's pride with God. If he makes me suffer and doesn't give me a great life, something must be wrong with him because... And then there's all the kinds of pride that mess with this. Our gathering as a church. I mean, I wish there's some way that we could bar the doors and get our biggest ushers to make sure that pride wouldn't invade this space, but it it always does, no matter which side of the stage you're on. It was pride that started the worship wars 20 years ago. Which are the good churches, the traditional ones or the contemporaries? War and worship? It's pride that leads people to judge the pastor's sermon. I might leave my family and friendships and hobbies behind for 15 hours a week, but if you don't like it, and how much did you pay to be here? Pride can judge the music. I don't like the song, that musician, that vocalist. Pride expects the children's ministry to be great, the music to be excellent, the coffee to be hot, even if we don't volunteer one minute of a month like 90.6% of our church members do. Pride is the thing that makes us look at our phones when someone needs our attention. It's why we don't forgive people who hurt us because we think they're worse than us. It's why we don't forgive ourselves because we think God doesn't know what he's talking about. When we're impatient, that's just pride. God's not doing things on our timetable. When we lack compassion, that's just pride. I don't have time to care about your pain and drama. I'm too busy. When a husband doesn't love his wife, that's just pride. He, he made a vow to sacrifice, to be like Jesus, and then he breaks it. When a wife won't respect or submit to her husband, that's pure pride. I'll only be nice to you if you choose what I want. Man. In huge ways, in small ways, in physical ways, in spiritual ways, the, the battle that all of us have to fight all the time is just that. 
Will we be humble and say, you first? Or will we turn inward and think of ourselves? So maybe one of the biggest questions we got to ask each other is, what are we going to do with pride? How are we going to put it to death today? But before it messes with another marriage, another church, another community, before pride turns a game into an event where parents are yelling at some poor referee or some kids are arguing about whether they're safe or out, before life stops being fun and we miss out on the blessing, how are you, how am I, how are we going to deal with pride? Well, the answer is on the front of your bulletin. Now, some of you, when you saw the front of your bulletin, you, you think that we messed up as a church. Because if you know anything about math, you know that the equation doesn't quite work, huh? It's like a greater than, sim- that, that's not less math. <laughs> Pastor Michael told me we almost had to change our sermon series title because some engineer confronted him about our bad mathematical usage. Uh, but that's intentional. Because how do you end up with less me? How do you end up with less pride? You remember that there is something, now there's someone that's greater than me. And if we fix our eyes on him, we have found the antidote to pride. In fact, if you're taking notes, write this down. The key to less me is more Jesus. And that essentially is what we want to give you for the next few weeks. I heard a a pastor on a podcast a couple days ago say it this way. Imagine you had an empty cup full of air and that air was pride. How are you going to get it out? Hmm. Well, that didn't work. (laughs) Um, You know what you could do? You could design a special like factory sealed vacuum suction system. (laughs) Get get all the air. That would work, I, I think, scientifically, but sounds like a lot of work. Or the the pastor on the podcast said, how about this? How about I pick up a pitcher of water? (laughs) And pouring in something else would would push out the air. That essentially is what I want to do to your heart in the weeks to come. We're going to talk a lot about pride and humility, but even more, we're going to fix our eyes on Jesus. We're going to pour as much of Jesus and his humility his compassion, his patience, and his love into your heart. And I hope that the byproduct is that Jesus root will produce spiritual fruit, patience, humility, love, and joy. So we're going to journey through the gospel of Matthew. And we're going to see how Matthew, one of Jesus' inner circle, one of his 12 apostles, his closest friends, saw shocking and uncharacteristic pride in our Savior. Now, to kick things off, I'm going to read you a scripture today from Matthew chapter 4. And when I read it, I have a hunch that most of you will not fall on your knees in worship. In fact, in the first service after I got done reading this, I didn't hear a single amen or preach or hallelujah. None of it. But I I guarantee this, if you you give me your attention, uh, today you're going to learn something you've never learned in church. And it's going to shock you at the humility and grace of your Savior. So let me show you the passage from Matthew chapter 4. Verse 12 says this. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, 
That's his relative, John the Baptist. He withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which is by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. Yes. I was going to have an awkward pause, but you beat me to it. (laughs) That actually is something to amen about. Uh, It's really good news, and let me tell you why. Uh, I got to give you a little bit of geography theology today, uh, if you're ready for it. So grab a pen, take a whole bunch of notes, because here's what I want to tell you. Uh, This passage says that Jesus went to Galilee. And you can see on the map behind me where Galilee was. Uh, Map of Israel is kind of like a, a big ice cream cone triangle on the bottom that's a desert. And then stacked on top of it are three regions. Judea in the south, that's where Jerusalem was. Samaria was in the middle. And then way, way up north was Galilee. And here's what you need to know about Galilee. It it was not the most impressive place in ancient Israel. Down south in Judea, there was the temple, the religious system, the movers, shakers, the influential people. You know, Samaria had a little bit of its charm. And then there was... Galilee. I mean, what would we compare it to today? Uh, the UP? <laughs> the, the, the Northwoods? Not exactly the hub of, <laughs> you know, commerce and industry. Not a lot of celebrities. You know, what, what would people in D.C. or New York or Miami or L.A. think about that? That's what people in Jerusalem thought about Galilee. The country folks lived up there. Guys who spend a little bit too much time in the woods. Kind of guys who don't own a pair of dress shoes and don't know how to tie a tie. That's, that's Galilee. In fact, when the rumors about Jesus started to spread that maybe the Messiah was here and he was from Nazareth in Galilee, do you know what the reaction was? I'll show you. John chapter 7, the religious leaders say this. Look into it and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. <laughs> like, no, up north? Are you kidding? Prophets, no one good comes from Galilee. But that's where Jesus lived. (laughs) In fact, this is my favorite part. Did you know that people in Galilee, according to the Bible, spoke with very thick, recognizable accents? Uh, Any of you know the story of Jesus' friend Peter, who's from Galilee? Uh, He's trying to get close to Jesus when he's on trial and he's, he's warming his hands by the fire with some people who lived in Judea and they said, hey, you were with Jesus, weren't you? And Peter denies it. No, no, I don't even know who that is. And do you remember their response? Oh yeah, you know who that is. Your accent gives you away. (laughs) Which super makes me wonder, what what kind of accent do you think Jesus had? Love your neighbor, eh? <laughs> like we, uh, we picture him as super like su- suave and smooth, but he came from like up north where these thick accents. It just makes me think like, wow, that, that was Jesus. He lived in Nazareth, which was such a dinky town that one of the early disciples said, nothing good can come out of Nazareth. And even when he got to choose his own place, when he left Nazareth to start his ministry, he could have gone anywhere, but he chose Galilee. What's more is what else the passage said. Uh, Matthew 4 says that Galilee was in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. Do you know what Zebulun and Naphtali are? (laughs) 
In the Old Testament, there was a guy named Abraham who's kind of famous. He had a son named Isaac. Isaac had a son named Jacob, and Jacob got the nickname Israel. Israel had 12 sons, and those 12 sons turned into 12 tribes. And when they took over the land of Israel, the whole land was divided up into 12 sections. Now, this past week, I did some super uh, amazing nerdy Bible research, and I tried to find how many times each of those 12 tribes were mentioned cover to cover in the Bible. Sounds fun, doesn't it? Um, Guess what I found about Zebulun and Naphtali? Yeah. Let me show you. First on the list of most named tribe in the entire Bible was the tribe of Judah. Uh, Jerusalem was in the land of Judah, so that makes sense. 802 mentions. Second place was Dan with 189. And third, Ephraim 167. And in fourth, Manasseh with 136. Zebulun and Naphtali were not in fifth or sixth or seventh or eighth. No, you had to go way, way, way to the bottom. And look what I found. With only 50 mentions in the entire Bible, Naphtali, and Zebulun with 48. In other words, it's, it's not just modern Americans who didn't talk much about those places. Even in the Bible, they didn't talk much about those places. Except Jesus chose to live there. What's more is that if you would read the entire Old Testament, you would find out that Zebulun, Naphtali, and Galilee were ruled by 20 different kings over a span of about 200 years. Do you know how many of those kings were good kings? Kings who kept the first commandment? Kings who brought the light of God's truth to the land? None. Exactly right. Zero out of 20 for 200 straight years. Galilee, Zebulun, and Naphtali were places of deep spiritual darkness. It was so bad that the Assyrian Empire took them all captive and into exile. And yet Jesus chose to live there. Oh, but wait, wait, wait. Those of you who paid attention to the passage might object and say, but pastor, did the passage say that Jesus went and lived in a city that was by the lake? I mean, if you have a friend who lives on the lake, it's not the poorest place to be in town, right? And that would be true, except you might not know about the lake we're talking about. The lake that Matthew references is the Sea of Galilee. And it is a fascinating place. The Sea of Galilee is the lowest freshwater lake in the entire world. It's 700 feet below sea level. And at times, it's beautiful. But the problem with the Sea of Galilee is that it sits 700 feet below sea level and all around it are the big mountains and hills of Galilee and the Golan Heights, 1,500 to 2,000 feet above sea level. So we're talking a 2,000, 2,500 foot difference. And when the air blows over the hills and it's cool because of the elevation, it then comes plunging down 2,000 feet to the warm waters of the Sea of Galilee and guess what happens to that peaceful lake? Crazy, dangerous, violent storms. It actually happens in the Bible, right? Trained fishermen who lived on the coast of the Sea of Galilee, they panic because they think they're going to die. It's so bad. So the place where Jesus lived was beautiful sometimes. And then in an instant, it wasn't. And that is where Jesus chose to live. 
in Galilee, Zebulun and Naphtali by the sea. So at this point in the message, you should be asking yourself a question. So what? <laughs> Thanks for the Bible trivia, Pastor. <laughs> like, I was busy tonight, but I came to church. There actually is a, a great so what. Um, before I tell you Matthew's so what, uh, let me tell you a story and show you a picture. So about a year ago, my wife and I decided that this upcoming summer, we we're going to take a vacation to San Francisco. Uh, check out the California coast. What I did not know, however, when we made that decision is that San Francisco apparently is the most expensive city to live in and to vacation in, in all of America. I'm a bit of a frugal hotel guy. So this has been a bit of a challenge for me. There's, there's some cheap hotels, but they're not in the nicest of places in San Francisco. It's a, it's a big city with beautiful hotel rooms and places that aren't so safe at night. I found one hotel, actually, that's kind of right on the border. Super cheap, twin bed, no AC. We might have to sleep with earplugs and a shared bathroom like a dorm because I know how to treat a lady. <laughs> I actually found one cheaper, but when I did some research, I found out it is not a safe place to be at night. And that experience made me think, like, if I was making six figures, the hotel would be easy. Safe, clean, free breakfast. The only reason I get close to the darker part of town is because of a lack of funds. So now think about Jesus. Why is he in Galilee? Why the place that ancient Israel had forgotten? Why the place where people get made fun of? A land of deep darkness, death, shadow, violence, He's God. He, he could have been in the most beautiful suburb of the Temple Mount. Why didn't he choose that? And the answer to that question is the good news for tonight. Let me tell you Matthew's answer here, Matthew chapter 4. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. So here's the reason why. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Why did Jesus live there? Because Jesus loves to bring light to dark places. If Jesus would have chosen the $2,000 a month condo next to the Temple Mount, for all of your life, you would have to wonder if he was humble enough to be close to you. But if Jesus would choose a place like that, then you and I would know, no matter how dark our story, that Jesus is not too proud to be here. To summarize it, I, I put it this way if you're taking notes. The point is that Jesus is humble enough to be here. Here in Galilee, here in Naphtali, and here in our hearts and our lives. 
And I don't know about you, but I think that is incredible good news. You know, if you're a millionaire who just happens to live in the Fox Valley, good for you. <laughs> but that's not most of us. Most of us are normal, average, mediocre. Like Zebulun and Naphtali, we didn't end up with the, the gold medal. We're not very famous on Google. We get seven likes on our last Instagram picture. But that doesn't bother Jesus. Like Zebulun and Naphtali, maybe we weren't first in our class, the prettiest girl in our school, the most successful guy at our company. But that doesn't bother Jesus. He is humble enough to be with normal people, average people, below average people. He's the friend of sinners. And he's here with us. He's here with us in our church. Do you know how average our church is? I did the math. Uh, Based on our current church attendance on a Sunday, both services combined, there are approximately 30,000 churches that are bigger than ours in America. (laughs) We're not at the top of the list. And you can say, well, pastor, we have like a TV show connected to this. Do you know how small we are in the world of TV church services? Tiny. But that doesn't bother Jesus. He lived in Galilee. And he's with us here today. Or maybe some of you have kind of dark, messed up stories. Like those 20 kings who ruled Zebulun and Naphtali. Maybe there's 20 generations of your family that are kind of dysfunctional. Broken branches in your family tree. Uh, Depression and alcoholism and suicide and marriages that didn't make it. But Jesus is okay with that. (laughs) He goes into places that are really dark and his light shines. Or maybe your own morality is a little bit like the Sea of Galilee. You know, one moment you're chill and you're super friendly at church and then he says the wrong thing in the car. And But those are the very waters where Jesus walked. And we are the very people that he befriends. <laughs> to, to me, this is the good news of the Bible that I just can't wrap my brain around. Why, why would God want to call this his home? And I can't come up with a good reason. Any more than I can find a good reason for the Son of God to live in Nazareth and Galilee, but he does. <laughs> and so I love the addresses where Jesus lives. I love the places that he picks to dwell. I love the fact that you and I never have to doubt that Jesus is close to us, that he's with us, that he's for us. And so, yeah, maybe your story is sketchy. Uh, Maybe the person who emailed me from this past month who's struggling with gay pornography or you're facing felony charges or you're trying not to go back to heroin or you don't know if your dad's a Christian you don't know if your marriage is going to survive after the infidelity. Like it's, it's complicated. It's, it's bad. Which is why this story is so good. Because <laughs> Jesus doesn't run away from messy places. He brings his ministry and he chooses to be there. And when he comes close, 
Do you know what Jesus says to you? I do. It's the last verse of our text for today. Verse 17, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. That was like the summary of Jesus' teaching. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, before I say amen, there's two things you need to know about the kingdom of heaven. Here's the first one. In the kingdom of heaven, there is a king, and it's not you. In the kingdom of heaven, there is a Lord who gets the last word, and it's not you. The gate to get into the kingdom of heaven is narrow and it's short, and people wearing crowns or dragging their thrones can't get in. In the kingdom of heaven, Jesus is the Lord, and he always gets the last word. And I'll be real with you, this is why many people don't like the kingdom of heaven. If you want to be the king of your budget or your body, your marriage or your money, you can't get into the kingdom of heaven. If you want to have the last word about what is right, what is wrong, who you're going to love and who you're going to forgive, which desires in your heart should be praised and applauded and which one should be fought and rejected. If you want the last word on all that, you can't get into the kingdom of heaven. If you want to hold on to life as you want it, desire it, plan it, if it's your career, your family, your home, your everything, you can't get into the kingdom of heaven because there is only one king in the kingdom and it's not you, not me. In fact, here's the crazy thing. Do you know when Jesus moved to Capernaum and he lived there for three years, he taught in their synagogue that he was the bread of life who could satisfy their soul. He drove out demons from people who were possessed. He healed people of their sicknesses. Lame people walked in Capernaum. Sinners were befriended in Capernaum. And at the end of three years, do you know what Jesus said about Capernaum? that it was cursed. That when those people died, it would actually be better for Sodom and Gomorrah, the towns that tried to gang rape angels in the Old Testament, it would be better for them than for the people of Capernaum. Because some people want Jesus and they want healing and they want forgiveness but they just won't take off the crown. And so they can't get into the kingdom. So let me ask you the most important question in the world. Will you repent? The word repent in the Greek language means to change your mind about something. Will you repent over the most important thing in your whole existence? That Jesus is Lord and he gets the last word. That whatever you think about whatever topic, whatever thing, whatever discussion, it's, it's always with an asterisk unless Jesus disagrees. Will you do that? I think you should. 
And my second point about the kingdom of heaven is why. Because if you get into the kingdom of heaven, you get heaven. The kingdom of heaven is so beautiful and the walls of the kingdom are so strong that any sin you've ever committed can't get inside. Every proud thing that you regret, every argument you wish you could take back, every accusation the devil would make while you are not worthy, it can't get through the walls of the kingdom of heaven. Death itself can't bust through the gates of the kingdom of heaven. One day you will die, but condemnation, hell, being separated from God, that stuff can't get into the kingdom. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is a kingdom of joy and of peace because in that kingdom, light shines through dark hearts. And there is complete forgiveness and unfailing love, a God who is always there and whose face is always shining upon his people. In the kingdom of heaven, you have to give up the life that you knew and what do you get in return? A life that never ends. A life with God. A life that is a billion times better than the best thing you have ever experienced in your whole existence. And so it might scare you to repent, to to let go of that one thing. But I guarantee you this, the king of heaven is a king of love. And you will not regret falling on your knees and crawling into the kingdom About 80 years ago, there was a very famous Christian, some people say the first global celebrity, and his name was Walter Meyer. Before Billy Graham was talking about Jesus on the television, Walter Meyer was a Lutheran pastor who was talking about Jesus on the radio. And it blew up. Millions and millions of people, dozens of different languages, heard the powerful, incredibly gifted voice of Dr. Walter Meyer. Walter Meyer was so smart that when he did his doctorate work on ancient Hebrew and Near Eastern languages, his professors that were analyzing him tried to put him on the spot and gave him a piece of Hebrew that he had never seen before. His translation was so good that they made it the new official translation of the school. He was incredibly talented. He had a thousand reasons to be proud. And then he met a girl. Uh, Her name was Hulda. And Hulda had heard about the great Dr. Walter Meyer. But then she got to see him up close. And you know what she saw up close? A humble man. A man who used his platform and his gifts, not for himself, but to serve people in love. Hulda said, To a man like that, I could give my life. And she did. (laughs) They got married. And as her husband, he used his gifts, his calling to serve her. And today, friends, I want to tell you the same thing about Jesus. To such a Savior, you can give your life. And you don't have to be afraid. Whatever he takes from you in repentance, he will give back a thousandfold in grace. And I know that's true because of the sign I saw above his head. When Jesus' arms were stretched out on a cross, 
Do you remember the sign they put above him? This is Jesus of Nazareth. (laughs) Nazareth. (laughs) The king of the Jews. Our king used all of his power and authority to die on a cross for the forgiveness of every sin so that the kingdom of heaven would never be far, far away. It would be right here with people like us. So repent and believe the good news. The kingdom of heaven is here. Let's pray. Dear God, I, I think the enemy, the devil, fixes our eyes on the things that we might lose if we repent. And we're so afraid that we don't. And so I pray right now for your Holy Spirit to open the eyes of our heart that we would look at Jesus and be so enamored with his love for us that we would consider him a treasure. (laughs) That we would give up anything, everything, just to be with him and follow him. Because through Jesus, we get to you. We get to happiness that never, ever ends. I pray today, uh, Heavenly Father, that you would use the humble example of Jesus to push every bit of pride out of our hearts. Before there's an argument in the car, before there's a quarrel with some teacher or coach, help us to think about Jesus who had every right, but he gave up his right so that we could be righteous and right with you. I thank you, Heavenly Father, that you're here. I'm some 39-year-old guy who's going gray in some little church, in some little city, in some little state, but you're, you're God and you're here. You're listening to me and to us. That's amazing. And we love you for it. Help us to simply be shocked that the God of all creation cares so deeply about us, about our small problems, about our biggest sins. And may that humility push out everything ugly and help us to realize that when there's less me, we are truly blessed. I thank you, God, for hearing this prayer. I know that you do. And we come to you in the name of the King of kings and Lord of lords, our humble Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.